Hello and welcome to the Second Row Podcast. My name is Porrick Kelly and as always I'm joined by Ushin Collins. Hello Porrick, another busy European weekend here, the final round of group games and some absolutely boring foregone conclusions. This really wasn't a weekend to excite in that sense. Not a whole lot of mystery. Excite the nerds who had calculators out of weird permutations, but that's pretty much it. And even they didn't have much fun. No, there wasn't a lot that could change given how the previous five rounds had run, but we still got a couple of decent performances. Uh, But yeah, mostly what was predicted, I think. Before we get into all the European matches and the single game for the Pro 14 this weekend, we'll look at the rugby news this week. And speaking of predictable, the Six Nations squads have been announced. Not a whole lot of surprises, and I guess briefly talking about the England squad, no Cipriani and no Alex Good. Eddie Jones' squad selection about as predictable as his lame attempts at mind games at this stage. When he, I hear him in the news, I just actually stop listening. Mm. From a Wales perspective, mostly the only thing surprising there was that they had 30 fit players in Wales, given the injury crises. But the players they have can still cause damage, and you can never rule them out in the Six Nations. No, and a couple of them are hitting really good form now as well. Scotland, again, no major surprises in that team, but some injuries over the last couple of weeks that could cause them problems. Hamish Watson is a big loss, but they could be a real dark horse this year if the Edinburgh and Glasgow players can bring their form into the national setup. And from Ireland's point of view, the men out west, the only real surprise packages in the Six Nations squad, and not really surprise packages if you've been watching Connacht's form lately. Yeah, Quaylen Blade, Jack Carty, and Tom Farrell all selected and in line for their first caps for Ireland. We have an injury crisis below Connor Murray at nine, so Blade for me was a shoe in. Jack Harty has been playing better than Byrne overall, but he's not getting the armchair ride Byrne's getting at Leinster, so when he plays well, it's more impressive. I think for me, what Joe has done is he's picked starting 10s who are starting with their provinces. One of the big reasons that Joey Carberry moved last year was to get starting game time, and Jack Harty has benefited here over Ross Byrne, despite Ross Byrne getting a lot of game time in big fixtures this year. That's more down to Johnny Sexton's injury than his own play. Still counts. <laughs> Fair. And Tom Farrell just been playing really, really well, and I think he just suits Joe Schmidt's style. There was a great exchange on Twitter this week. Someone said, Chris Farrell is the form 13 in Ireland at the moment. And somebody came back with, he's not even the best Farrell in the Ireland camp. (laughs) True. Harsh but fair. (laughs) But one bit of unfortunate news this week. South African international Pat Lambie has had to retire from rugby. Would have played with Racing 92 up until obviously recently. After a number of issues with concussion, he's decided to retire and just protect his health, basically. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. And for me, it just highlights how the game needs to keep focusing on the high tackle laws. Refs need to just keep enforcing them strictly, as they were doing in the November internationals, but seem to have gone away since. And it's an area of the game that has to improve. Player safety is always going to be paramount. And what I'm hoping is that we can find ways to enforce these laws in a way that still makes the game enjoyable, but is obviously safe for players. It's a fine line. And... Someday, hopefully, it'll be reached. There you go. Rather than our normal approach with the European podcast of running through pools one at a time, because the kickoffs in each pool are at the same time in the final round of pool games, we're going to go through them in the order that they happened. So starting with Friday night's games on pool five, and we had Edinburgh v Montpellier. Edinburgh winning that game at home, 19 points to 10. I am so happy they are through. A piece of history made in Scotland. Both teams in the European quarterfinals for the first time ever. It's incredible. I took a lot of stick this week from Munster fans, like as in friends of mine who are Munster fans, because I said I was going to be cheering for Edinburgh. I knew it was likely going to mean an away quarterfinal for Munster, but Edinburgh are so deserving of this at this stage in the competition, of this stage in the season. Even if there was a cagey start to the match, the Edinburgh scrum laid down an early marker 
they were up for this. The pack were not going to get bullied. And against Montpellier, that's a big statement. It is. And we've talked about Edinburgh building their game from forward dominance over the last number of weeks and just bullying teams up front. I didn't expect them to have this ability to bully a team as packed with international talent as the Montpellier pack is. But man to man, they were far, far superior. Ruan Pinar, really the only player in that Montpellier team able to lift their performance and find a bit of game line success. And Montpellier were actually quite clever in how they targeted Matt at the kickoffs. Well, for the first couple of ones anyway, just to get him out of the game for a few phases was really smart, but they didn't keep it up. Well, not only did they not keep that up, their discipline was just too poor. The penalty count continued to creep up and really let Edinburgh start to build out a lead, but also let them off the hook a number of times. Anytime that Montpellier were building up pressure, they just got to get out of jail free card. As we mentioned, Hamish Watson's going to miss some of the Six Nations and his injury in this game looked like to me it was going to be a real blow, but the Edinburgh scrum and pack just continued to dominate. Like Montpellier had to sub their prop off at 30 minutes to try and combat it. That's insane. You just don't see stuff like that. Like hooking a starting prop with less than a half of rugby. You know what though, it wasn't just the Edinburgh forwards. We talk about big players having big games. Van der Merwe was out to do damage today. His ball carrying was so destructive. His stats are actually unbelievable. He was actually doing better in the tighter exchanges where he had less room to move than he was when he got the ball in open field. He just was sidestepping everyone. Well, he was taking down two or three tacklers because normally whoever goes into contact with him first is like the guys they send up out of the barricades in World War One. You know they're going to get shot, but the guy behind him might have some hope of taking the guy down. Right? <laughs> it's just sacrificial lambs if you try and tackle Vandermeer first. I was really impressed Edinburgh knew this was a cup game. They took all their points on offer and went for the points when it made sense. Van der Vaart may have missed one kick, which I thought might have caused them a lot of trouble, but in all fairness, it didn't. I think what did cause them trouble was conceding that try just before half time. I think it was just slightly quick thinking again from Pinar, who did seem to realise that if Montpellier hadn't scored at that point, coming into the second half nine points adrift is a significant problem. And Edinburgh were lucky that Montpellier did score there because they would have been yellow carded for not being back 10. You know what, half time, nine points to seven, it's a lot better of a game we could have seen in the second half, but as it was, Edinburgh just tightened up even more, turned the screw even more, and continued to get their points. But it wasn't exactly, you know, box office viewing. No, it wasn't. Like, Montpellier changed up the scrum, won the first penalty, and got to ten points really on. You're like, oh, you know, it sets the seeds of doubt, but Edinburgh just kept plugging away and didn't let Montpellier grow from there. And Edinburgh got the try that was the difference. After a couple of ruck phases close to the line, Pergos spots that the blindside winger has gone walkabout and over Graham goes for another try. I was shouting at the TV through that whole section because Montpellier were just being so cynical at every breakdown. They were doing everything in their power during that phase of play and the full game to slow down the ball illegally. They were getting let away with murder. I was losing my mind. It's almost like they had Quinn Rue playing for them. Yes, finally, he's finally on your team. <laughs> you know what? Edinburgh got a great win here, topped their pool. Just what a European campaign it's been for them so far. Built on really, really good physical performances from their pack. An extraordinary scrum and just work rate. They are so combative. For me, it was one of their core strengths from this win. That last 10 minutes especially, the defensive sets they were putting in to keep Montpellier out were huge. I still think Simon Hickey gets more out of that back line. I just think he's capable of creating more from the players around him. But Van der Valt, to be fair, has stood up 
ever since his place has come kind of under a bit of threat. It's been great. And I mean, Edinburgh are in the nice position of having two high quality 10s shooting it out for that jersey. Which can only push them on further. And well, they're the only one leaving this group. Newcastle and Toulon played out a 24 points to 27 win for Toulon. Newcastle's European campaign very much dead after its very promising start. So that's Pool 5, and we'll move on to Pool 3 that kicked off the Saturday fixtures. Yeah, both fixtures in Pool 3 with Pro 14 teams playing, but of those, only Glasgow had a chance to qualify. They travelled to Saracens while Cardiff hosted Leon, and we might cover the Glasgow game first, I think. Yeah, definitely. Saracens beat Glasgow 38 points to 19, and this was an insane 40 minutes of rugby. Well, it was an insane 30 minutes of rugby, and then 40 minutes of nothing, and then 10 busy minutes at the end. Yeah. I haven't watched a game where so much has happened and they promised so much and delivered on so little for the rest of the game. Glasgow came down here looking to play. With Edinburgh winning the night before, both these teams were already qualified for the knockout stages. But this match was to see where both of them would be in those quarterfinals. Yeah, and Saracens were always going to have a home quarterfinal. It was just how high up the rankings they could climb. As it was, they basically just traded ridiculously good tries against each other. This wasn't a game where defences were on top, though, really. No, they were given Super Rugby, for the first half hour anyway, a run for its money. No one really was interested in defending at all. I wasn't even going to say, I was going to say defending well, but that would be a lie. <laughs> well, Saracen struck first from a tries perspective. Simple one-on-one tackles and Strettle marches through about three of them and then gives an offload for Ben Spencer to get a try under the posts. You can just see the Glasgow players behind the post shaking their heads at this. This was not the start they ordered. No, but the second that Glasgow got a bit of possession, they were forcing the Saracens fence to go tight. And when they were able to get width on it then, that's where their try came from. And it was really well taken. I have to say, I was impressed with how Glasgow's forwards stood up in this game. They spent the last couple of weeks being pretty badly bullied. And Saracens are known for that kind of dominance at least for the first hour of this game. I thought Glasgow were more or less on a par with a Saracens pack that includes the likes of Jamie George and Maro Atoje and George Cruz. And if we talk about forwards, the Glasgow forwards were tough, but they were intelligent as well. The Ali Price try came from a block down of a box kick, but it was someone attached to them all going, I'm not offside if I just put my arm up here. Really smart. The ball gets blocked down and Ali Price runs through for one of his easiest tries I say he'll ever score. There was so much space for him to run through. He took a really nice line and it was interesting because a lot of the time that kick chase game was extremely effective. Liam Williams just looks like he's timing a run of form so well for the Six Nations. Anything that got kicked to him, he absolutely cut Glasgow apart on the run back, but he was a real threat chasing kick aheads as well. Oh, he really was. And in the first half, Glasgow's kick game avoided him at all costs. The second half, they decided to throw that out the window completely. You look at Saracen's second and third try though, and it was still a bit of forward dominance. A line-out maul, which I don't know how many of their backs were in there, but there was definitely not eight players mauling that. And then Billy Vinopola off the back of a five-metre scrum. Are you ever going to bet against Billy Vinopola in that position? No, because he makes those five metres off the base of every scrum across the field. Like It's just something he does. Both flankers have to be so aware, and your own number eight, to stop him. But it wasn't just there that Glasgow's flankers missed a trick. They weren't securing clean ball for Glasgow at the breakdown. And a lot of the time they were looking to the likes of Hastings or the likes of Hogg to create something from nothing because they weren't able to build that long possession phase. The thing is, there really was a strong wind in Saracens and Glasgow were playing into it in the second half. So you can kind of see why their play from everywhere that you decided to come back because kicking it was kind of pointless. 
Yeah, I, I do think there is a time and a place for champagne rugby and throwing loose balls like they did around Saracens is a little bit risky. This really was a game of three halves. The opening half hour of mentalness, the next 40 minutes of kind of whatever, and then the Saracens dominant bit, which put the gloss on the scoreline. It did. I mean, this game was 24-19 coming into the last piece, and I think that probably reflected the first hour of the game. But Saracens went up a gear, and they timed that for where Glasgow really started to run out of steam. Running in a really nice try down the right-hand side, really good hands again from the likes of Skelton, Itoje, and Jamie George. They did get one more try towards the end just to twist the knife in, but like, what do you expect? Glasgow had no defence for the guts of 50 minutes of this game, and 38 points scored against them proves that. It did, and looking at the way the quarterfinals are stacking up, which we'll get to later, Saracens, not too worried. Glasgow, some stuff to sort out pretty quickly. Yeah, their line-out being one of them, they won so little of their own ball. Well, that and just basic front-up tackling. Like, they've got a good scrum, and their kicking game, when it's done intelligently, is very effective. But they just need to get themselves back to being an 80-minute team, because right now, they're not there. That's for sure. And we'll move on to the other game in Pool 3, which was literally the deadest of rubbers this weekend yeah and i guess good for cardiff they won 33 points to 14 took a bonus point and it was a nice chance i suppose for them to try some combinations uh relatively young outside center harry millard jared evans back at 10 with anscombe at 15 but this isn't a game that either team had anything to play for yeah and that that was pretty evident watching it there wasn't a whole lot of you know passion commitment and urgency being shown from any side but going through it is things that cardiff want to fix Penalty try after 15 minutes for your scrum going on the back foot three times in a row. Not good. No, and their tackling really did demonstrate that lack of commitment, that lack of concentration. We've talked about this Cardiff team over the course of this season not staying awake until the end of a half or until the end of a game. And again, conceding a try just before half time here. Although there was a couple of nice highlights for me and highlights was really all we were looking for in this game. Thomas Williams showed the form that got him into the Wales squad. A really good offload to set up try number three. Mata, eat your heart out. Like, it was better than Mata's from last week for me. It was, well, given that Bill Mata is Bill Mata, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Williams also ran a really good support line after Navidi, I don't know how, ghosted through the Leon defence. Navidi sometimes gets the ball and he attacks props, like outside centres attacks props, and goes, oh, a little quick step and I'm inside you. And it happened here again. Looked up, saw a prop on one side, a hooker on the other, and went, I'm having that all the way through and a little rolled ball back inside but he has such good hands and he's going to be such an important player for Wales in the upcoming Six Nations because how many people in the back row did Wales really have at this stage yeah I think we can see Josh Navidi getting a lot more game time in a red shirt <laughs> interestingly what I've talked about throughout this season about having Jared Evans at 10 and Anscombe at 15 for me that really made the first two tries because it enables Cardiff to get such width on the ball Leon were defending very narrow one big pass out from Evans and you've got someone there with the quality of Anscombe to be able to pass it on again. And they just got outside that Leon defensive line at ease. Twice. The exact same move happened twice. Leon should be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> Look, it's not a game that had any real outcome on anybody's season. It's nice for Cardiff to get a win. Let's see where they kick on from this. Before we go on though, there really was a great lesson for all young rugby players. Actually, and old rugby players. That you always play the whistle. For Cardiff's last try, when Millard had given up, when he thought there was a knock-on, Lee Jones just chased it down to dot down. So, obviously, Millard thought that the ball had been lost forward, the ref was going to blow the whistle. But you could see the Cardiff winger, who knew that it hadn't been knocked on, screaming at his teammates to touch it down. 
Thank God Lee Jones was awake to it. It had no bearing on the outcome. It had no bearing on any tables. Nothing had any bearing in this game. True. But it really shows you've got to play the ref and you've got to play the whistle. Look, Cardiff's European adventure is over. But if they can take the same type of attacking optimism that they did in this game and the same type of ball distribution, let's bring that back into the Pro 14 and really push for a playoff spot. If they can wait until after they face Connacht and aim Cardiff, that's fine. <laughs> Look, we move on to Pool 4, the Saturday afternoon fixtures. And we had, again, two games of Pro 14 interest and both important matches for the outcome of this pool. Leicester hosted Ulster and Racing 92 played the Scarlets in Paris. Ulster game first, and they just squeaked out of this. 14 points, 13. This is just about resembled a game of rugby for the first half an hour. It was not invigorating. I had just driven down, so I watched this at the Supporters Club Bar in Thomond, and it wasn't even gripping the crowd who were there, who were all rugby heads. Everyone was like, is it time to go down to the stands yet? Oh, it was just such a poor game of rugby for the first 35 minutes. What really amazed me, Ulster really had something to play for here. They needed results to go their way in order to get any kind of hope of not necessarily qualifying at all, but there was big impact on getting points here. And Leicester looked more up for it. Firstly, their team was a lot stronger than I expected it to be. Same. I thought this would be a chance for them to put out their kids and then they've got their premier rugby, fake rugby cup, rugby, fake rugby cup next week. That's where the kids are going to be playing. Obviously. Because they're flogging all their senior players and then complaining about not having enough money to have more senior players. Uh, England. But look, just like the Glasgow game last week, 30 minutes to wait for the first score does not make a good game of rugby. No, and... I think Dave Shanahan was doing his level best to lift the tempo a couple of times. The problem was, when he's the only one lifting the tempo, he's going to get turned over because he ran away from his supporting players at least one occasion after McCloskey broke the gain line for them. But where's the Ulster back row? Where's the other Ulster centre? The work rate in those situations wasn't good enough. No, and Kutsia seemed to be more looking to take ball on in this game rather than monstering the breakdown. And I don't know whether that was like ineffective employment of their resources, because certainly as a unit, they didn't seem to have the same degree of effectiveness they've had in previous fixtures. This game was error-strewn from both teams, and it took a bit of magic just for half-time to put a bit of life into it. And really an individual error from Louis Ludic. His cover play just wasn't good enough. And Ulster then go in behind at half-time, despite it being fairly evenly matched, if not of the highest standard. I'd also be looking at the defensive line for Ford's kick. He had so much space to kick in between players, it just sinks to the work rate Ulster didn't have in that first half. But the second was a big turnaround. Massively so. I mean, they won the second half 14 points to three. And Ulster's first try was actually a bit of an oxymoron. It was some really clever, quick thinking from the pack. Quiet you. Quiet you now. <laughs> pack the, the pack got Ulster back into this game because someone had to. <laughs> yeah, all right, fine. For Anti-forward bias will not be held on the second row podcast, I suppose. Look at the name. Yeah, it's a bit of a clue there. <laughs> but look, when Ulster formed up for that mall, I didn't necessarily think they were going to be able to get all the way over the line. They had a good amount of distance to travel. But if you look at from when Marty Moore rejoined the mall after getting like hoovered out the side, he actually swung the point of attack around to the left and was smart enough to know when to peel off. It was just really good timing and really, really good direction. This is what Ulster fans want to see more of from Marty Moore. This is a big name signing. He was touted as the number three for Ireland a couple of years ago. And he needs more performances like this on a more consistent basis. That mall move was really smart. I'd say that's something Dan McFarlane's been working on for a very long time. Although it was the back line who 
won the game for Ulster in the end, Porrick. And Billy Burns put a really nice chip through for Jacob Stockdale, at which point Balakoon sprinted and took the ball off him. But was really impressive for me. Like, yes, he did nick the ball from Stockdale. But when he gets over the try line, you can clearly see him thinking to himself, there's no one around me under the post. Let's make sure this is an easy conversion as possible. For a young player, that shows really, really good maturity and calmness under pressure. And not enough wingers do it. Too many people are just eager to get the ball down and not think of the, the overall picture. Yeah, there's an American Sevens rugby player who's particularly bad for it, whose name I can't remember. Ulster looked like they weren't going to do this, though, until John Cooney came on and really brought the level of the game up. He was incredible from a defensive and offensive point of view. He was commanding Ulster from nine. If he was in France, he would be Petit General. Numero uno. Numero un. And it really helps when the full Ulster defensive effort for the last 10 minutes upped their game. Best, once again, just turning over the ball for fun. Well, I think if we want to talk about the strengths in this game from an Ulster point of view, actually getting themselves back into a match of this nature is important. Credit to the coaching team. Credit to the leaders on the field. Ian Henderson was always talking and he was always trying to lift the levels. Best the same. Cooney the same. We've talked about the difference it makes when Ulster do have all of those players on the pitch. I think... What was missing in the first half, whatever it was, whether that was motivation or concentration or the plan being right, they were able to resolve it and get the result they needed. And if you're an Ulster fan, that's all you care about. It's the points that matter here, and Ulster did just enough, which can't be said for the Scarlets in Paris. They lost to Racing 92, 46 points to 33. They didn't have much to play for, but they really threw the ball around anyway. They did, and I think what was most impressive for this is looking at the players who seem to have actually hit a bit of form. Hadley Parks looked back to his old self again. Some nice distribution, some nice running, and he was within a Zeebo away from getting their first try in the corner. Zeebs bundled him into touch. And Steph Evans impressed me as well. He'd been dropped at the beginning of the season, and due to injury, he's now back in the team, and he's putting in very good performances now. He is. He scored something like three or four tries across his last couple of games, showing, I, I guess, why... So much of Wales has been screaming for him to get a shot in that shirt. And class is permanent, you know. That's why he's in the Wales squad. And maybe Gatland won't have the same hang-ups as Pivak has had this year selecting him. I think Gatland won't mind if he gives him a good 60 minutes and they can take him off. The problem for this game was that Racing just found points so easily. Whether that was kick-throughs from Russell, whether that was big rolling malls. Shivansi involved in both of those. He didn't seem to know whether he was playing soccer or in the pack, but... It worked. Look, they all count at the end of the day. This match went over and back a few times. Both teams just scoring tries for fun in the first half. It did slow down a bit in the second. The tries were coming far too easily. And from a Pro 14 perspective, looking at Scarlets, I think they had two major issues, which were really well exposed by Russell and that Racing backline. They were defending very, very narrow, which meant there was a huge amount of space out wide. Russell unlocked them a couple of times with kicks through or just fast hands through the backs. But how fast was their ruck ball? This has been a running theme for Scarlets. And it extends from all the injuries they have in the back row. If they're not slowing down opposition ball, they're just going to leak this many tries because you cannot give the opposition good, clean, quick ball. Someone has to be slowing the ball down at all times. And no one's really doing it for Scarlets this week. Despite that, Scarlets had a chance to go level on the hour mark. And Dan Jones missed such a straightforward kick. I mean, my clown of the round radar started going off pretty hard here, right in front of the posts to bring your team level. And he just completely fluffed his lines. For me, that was the moment Scarlet's lost this game. If they go level here, it gives them a boost. 
But from that point on, heads have to drop. It's so important to keep the scoreboard ticking over just to ensure that you still have that level of self-belief. And if your 10 isn't going to get your simple opportunities that they're working so hard to get, it's just really hard to keep motivated. And then Racing just score some of the easiest tries they'll ever score. More kicking across the pitch. Vakatara running over for one and a show and go under the post for Ribaren. Like not It was good. just all too easy. Yeah. And you would know looking at the Scarlets, this is a game where there isn't a huge consequence. But in a weekend that saw literally every Welsh team get knocked out of Europe, you are looking for the standout team, last year's beaten semi-finalists, to be putting in a better performance than this. But the problem is they were the best Welsh team this weekend. And that is still saying something. Mm-hmm. And we move on to one of the most attritional games of rugby I have ever seen. Munster against Exeter in Thoman Park. And Munster ground out a 9 points to 7 win in terms of a packed out crowd. This game was only enjoyable for Munster and Exeter fans because, oh my god, it was boring for the neutral. No, this was a game of the purists. Oh no, I like a good defence. But I'd like <laughs> someone to like look like they're going to score a try more than once. I mean, to be fair, Exeter didn't look like they were going to score a try when they did score their try. They still scored it though. Yeah, I know. This is one of these ones where the result is all that counts. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. But it was real, real case of defence over attack. The line speed from both of these teams was incredible. The tactical awareness from both of these teams to shut down the major weapons was really effective. But having said that, there were mistakes. And for me, despite the fact that Murray's kicking seemed to be getting a pretty good return from Exeter, it looked like that was the only weapon that we had at times. And you can tell that was something Munster really wanted to do because the Exeter back three couldn't hold on to a ball if you paid them. Wait, they are being paid to hold on to the ball. <laughs> this isn't good. No, and it's actually something we saw across a couple of the Premiership teams this weekend and last weekend. Gloucester didn't seem to be able to handle a high ball. Wasps didn't seem to be able to handle a high ball. I mean, great, but worrying? Not if you're playing against England. Hey, <laughs> I think for me, there was a little bit of what you'd normally call unforced errors. So knock-ons or spilling the ball in contact. Calling them unforced errors in this type of a game is a little bit harsh. It really is. Extra especially made sure to let Carberry know they were there. And I think teams need to realise this a bit more for Carberry. Hit him. Just hit him. Every now and again, take the penalty and hit him. Like, I know that sounds really bad and it sounds a bit dirty, but I mean... Hit him clean. Don't, like, break his leg or anything. If it's far enough out where you're not giving away a three, it's a smart play. It is. And we saw, again, a couple of occasions where Carberry gets the ball behind the gain line or with the pack going backwards. And there still isn't always a safe way to exit with that ball. It's not like he always has a runner because of the way Munster are setting up their attacking and defensive line. So, yeah, absolutely trying to stabilize him and panic him. And panicked was the only word I can use to describe what happened in the Munster backline on 42 minutes. We got the ball. The clock was dead. Why it wasn't just kicked immediately into touch, I have no idea. As it is, we turned over possession and ended up having to defend for another two or three minutes against a fired up Exeter team. And they had scored a really good mall try at this stage. And I'd say they thought, if we can get a penalty, go to the corner, we can do this again. And... That's all they tried to do. I was really glad that the ball popped loose and CJ Stander just didn't try and kick it. He just sprinted into touch with the ball. And then down the tunnel. But the second half rolled around and nothing changed. The halftime team talks didn't have much of an effect. Munster still looked a bit frenetic in attack. Just the ball popping everywhere. No real plan. But Exeter's blitz defence didn't let up. 
the problem I think from Exeter's point of view though is they didn't treat this like the cup game that it was. They didn't take shots at goal when there were opportunities available to them. And Munster won this. I won't call it a lucky win, but I think they rode their luck that Exeter didn't take the kickable opportunities. They should have been 13 points to six up at one point. Part of that though is knowing Exeter's game plan. If Exeter get a penalty in the opposition half, they go to the corner. They have that much faith in their line-out mall. But in this type of a game, in this type of a cauldron, you need to take your points. And Munster did that. And at the end of the day, that's why they won this match. That and just the most ballsy line-out call I have ever seen with a couple of minutes to go. Billy Holland's first action on the pitch is to contest on a five-meter line-out and he steals the ball cleanly and turns it over. It was a line-out again that got you the penalty to win the match. O'Mahony steals an extra ball, comes down with it. Obviously, there's a foul somewhere, wins a penalty. Carberry walks over, posts. He yeah. wanted that. Pressure? What pressure? He's, like He's kicked his last 20 in a row since the horror performance in cast in December. It's well known at this stage. He had a niggle during that match. So it's not surprising his kicking wasn't the best. But look, that last five minutes, the defensive effort by Munster was huge. It's been a hallmark of ours in the big game so far this season. And it's something you can build upon. But I do want to see us, ironically, after I gave out to you for this on the last pod, I do want to see us generating a little bit more variety-wise in terms of our attack. So you're saying I was right? No, I'm saying you're now right. <laughs> <laughs> but watching a match... It, what I said last week was coming to mind. I'm like, you needed a few set plays every now and again just to test Exeter. They weren't coming. We haven't had a game yet where all of our backline have played outstandingly at the same time. There's been games where Carberry and Chris Farrell have stood out. This week, I think it was probably Rory Scannell and Andrew Conway's turns to have a good game. Well, you need one halfback and one outside back having a fired up game because otherwise... You can be a fired up 15, you ain't getting the ball. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. Speaking of a fired up 15 players, Cast, after going 14-0 behind at home, ended up beating Gloucester 24 points to 22. In a game that meant nothing. Yeah, and credit to them. They had a huge number of fans there and they were good value. As were the Exeter fans in Homer Park actually, supported their team from 0 to 80 without ever turning into that type of England fan. And speaking of sound English fans, Wafts made sure to know that the Leinster flags were welcome in the Rico Arena anyway this week. This Twitter thing will not die. It's so funny. It's a gift that keeps on giving. It really is. <laughs> well, so was Leinster's attacking line, beating Wasps 37 points to 19 at home. This was such a professional opening 40 minutes by Leinster. It was all Leinster for the first 20 minutes. Their first try was just inevitable. It was. And particularly given that their kick chase game was so effective in this, that's possibly the most complete game I've seen Gibson Park play. Some of the kicks were really spot on, dropping just inside the touchline, forcing Wasp players to make errors all the time. And it was pretty clear that Leinster needed a win and they went to their standard weapons to do so. This wasn't the best Leinster performance you've ever seen. It was never going to have to be. This was almost about trying to win while giving the least amount of effort possible. And without getting any major injuries, without showing your hand to the opposition... This was about preparing for a quarterfinal against a serious opponent and continuing to leave an air of mystery about what your real ceiling is from a potential skill perspective. But no one told Gary Ringrose that. Gary Ringrose doesn't have a lower level than this. <laughs> His sidestep for the try was brilliant. Like, I know it was through two props, but... I am I'm fully convinced that Gary Ringrose is either superhuman or he is Neo from The Matrix. He does not seem to be able to bring his skill level below, like, superstar. And in all fairness, it's easy for him to shine when 
Wasp's backline were doing absolutely nothing, and the Leinster backline didn't really need to do anything. They were just going through the motions. Yeah, like when Leinster's standout backs are Gary Ringrose, fair enough, and Dave Kearney. That's an odd sentence at the end of the first half, but Robbie Henshaw took on some pretty straightforward ball, ran it down the line as he needed to. Adam Byrne was typically good. Again, didn't get a lot of opportunity to show that. Larmore was a strange one for me. They seemed to be deploying him almost fully in a Rob Carney role. He didn't have a lot of opportunities to get on the ball in space. He seemed to be taking a lot of crash balls. In a game, I think Leinster knew they're going to win comfortably. Let's get Larmore doing some more basic 15 stuff so we can work on that. It's not a bad place to try because Wasps weren't going to poach anything at the breakdown. Not at the breakdown, but they did switch on in the second half and managed to score a couple of tries. This is a tough ask from a Wasps point of view because A, you're knocked out of the competition. B, it's Leinster. C, you've got other competitions that you're still live in, so you don't want to see any injuries. And D, you're knocked out of the competition. And E, it's Leinster. (laughs) So there wasn't a whole lot for them to play for, but they did score a couple of nice tries, uh, which may worry the Leinster defensive coaching team. Conceding tries is always concerned for defensive coaches. It's the manner of them which will be the worry. I think Porter especially will not be looking forward to his review. He got absolutely done for one of Wasp's tries. You cannot, under any circumstances, follow the ball when you're the pillar. You have to smash the nine. You always have to smash the nine. This is very amusing. <laughs> yeah, Wasp's got a couple of tries. But again, when they needed to, Leinster were just able to ramp up the intensity. They got a second line-out mall try to add to the one from the first half. Sean Cronin now joining Jacob Stockdale as the Heineken Cup group stage's top try scorer. What a weird Let, sentence. Let's add meters run with ball to that just so Jacob Stockdale wins. I think that's fair. But even from a backline perspective and from an offloading perspective, some really nice hands from Ruddock, from Deegan, to put Noel Reed over for a try when he was only on the pitch about 22 seconds. It was a comfortable win, a professional enough performance. They faded in the second half. With mission accomplished. And you don't really blame them. It's been an issue in the Pro 14 where they haven't put teams to the sword. This wasn't a game they really needed to. There is no long distance points difference they have to build up or anything like that. This was win, try bonus point, done, move on. And they did that in their typical way. Pack dominance, a really good kick chase game, especially from Gibson Park. Although I do want to see that killer instinct coming back in. I don't mind. They won't be facing Cork again this season, the Pro 14. So <laughs> let it come back as quickly as possible for the quarterfinals of the Champions Cup. That's fine. Speaking of the quarterfinals, Toulouse recorded a home win, 20 points to 17 against Bath, to book their place as well. There were a couple of other results in Europe this weekend. We start, as always, with Connacht's performance in Challenge Cup Pool 3. And thanks to European Rugby streaming this game online, finally got some chances to see that. So credit to European Rugby. Yeah, it's brilliant to see and have the ref link as well throughout. So you actually know what's going on on the pitch. Fantastic. And what went on on the pitch was that Connacht won 33 points to 27 with the last throw of the dice. Yeah, this was not a stellar performance by Connacht by any, any, any means. Great start, though. I mean, two early tries and this looked like it was going to be a nailed on bonus point win. I was literally popping the champagne going quarterfinals. Here we come. Quinn Rue goes underneath the post. Well, I say he went under the post, got dragged over by his support runner. And Healy did a normal Healy, like sidestepped around half of Bordeaux to get in the corner. But Bordeaux decided to just play and we decided not to. And they took the lead. Unlike previous week's performances where Connacht then failed to score for the rest of the game, you really fought back into this. Yeah, we did. We picked up a few tries, some really nice set-piece moves, but it 
took the introduction of Blade and Carty to really secure the win. Current on his first cap played very well and very nice to be pass off him, but Blade has been called up into the Irish squad for a reason. Carty's been called up to the Irish squad for a reason. These are good, good players. And the Carty interception to win the game was just brilliant. But these are moments that'll stand to players like Quinn Rue, to players like Carty and Blade, knowing that you can come back and win a game like this when you were 10, 12 points behind with a couple of minutes on the clock. That's phenomenal stuff. It's great to see a mental toughness creep into a team. We need to build on it because it has been lacking earlier on this season and we're still in the running in two competitions. And that's the next step of this squad's development, getting that toughness ingrained into them. Well, it's a little bit unfortunate that Perpignan didn't do you a favour. Sale obviously beating them 39 points to 10, which meant the Connacht finished second in their pool. Literally no one was surprised by that result. No. A couple of other results, again, nothing surprising, but the scale of some of the wins in the Challenge Cup were astronomical this week. They really were. We'll start in Pool 1. Dragons got beaten by Claremont 7 points to 49, while Northampton beat Timisoara Saracens 111 to 3. Again, I saw on Twitter someone thought this was a cricket game. In Pool 2, we had scores that looked like actual rugby scores. Poe beat Ospreys, 26 points to 21, just to really cap off a terrible European campaign for the Welshman. And Worcester beat Stade Francais, 36 points to 31, which was an important game from their seedings perspective. In Pool 4, Zebra lost to La Rochelle, 10 points to 22, which is disappointing. But not unexpected. Whereas Bristol beat NSI, 107 points to 19. Which is probably a record win for Bristol. I'd say so. And I saw online people giving out about the likes of NSA and Timis R. Saracens and why they're here. Like, they got to the finals of the Intercontinental Shield to be here. They actually earned their right. If they can't compete, that's a different story. But they actually earned their right to be here. They're not just there for no good reason. And both of those teams have had better results. And look at when Italy joined the Six Nations originally. Sometimes it takes some pretty bad beatings before you start to bring those skill levels up. We have to be patient. And if we're not patient with Tier 2 teams, what's the point of growing the game of rugby? Speaking of Tier 2, or rather second-rate teams, in Pool 5, both Agen and Grenoble got beaten at home by Harlequins and Benetton, respectively. And I'd like to apologise to Benetton. Connacht's win put them out of the Challenge Cup. It did, but so did some of their other performances in this group. I'm gutted. I would have loved to see Benetton in the knockout stages, and they will be there or thereabouts in the Pro 14 this year, I think. So look at it this way. They're now single focus. And with all of those games completed, we have our quarter finalists. In the Champions Cup, top seed Saracens played Glasgow in a rematch of their pool fixtures. Racing hosts Toulouse in an all-French affair, and then Leinster hosts Ulster in an all-Irish affair. That could be two really interesting games. Edinburgh, arguably the form team in the Pro 14 at the moment, host a Munster side who will not be looking at this as an easy draw. No, if this was in Thomond, I'd favour Munster. In Scotland, this is evens. And I, in all fairness, I'd give Edinburgh the edge at the moment. Uh, ah, it's not like Munster don't enjoy being plucky underdogs. Great to see, though. Murrayfield should have plenty of capacity for the travelling Red Army. In the Challenge Cup, we have a repeat of one of the few televised games of the group stages. Claremont host Northampton Saints. And Bristol's reward for that monster win is a trip to La Rochelle. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't think they'll be thanking anybody for that one. No. Connacht, on the other hand, get to go and look for some revenge. Travelling to Sale for their quarterfinal. And Worcester, meanwhile, play Harlequins. And that win that they got against Stade Francais means it's Worcester who are at home. That could be massive in this game. It really could be. Just a small funny fact about these. If Connacht beat Sale and Bristol beat La Rochelle, Connacht will host 
Bristol. So Pat Lamb and John Muldoon facing their old team. Interesting. And it'll be in Ireland, won't it? Definitely. Outstanding. In the Pro 14, there was one catch-up game this weekend. The Southern Kings hosted the Cheetahs and got beaten 17 points to 24. We talked about how important it was going to be for the Cheetahs to win these two back-to-back fixtures against the Kings. They've certainly started out the right way. They have, but they didn't get the try bonus point we both expected. This wasn't the most fluid game of rugby you'll ever watch. There was errors all over the place. This definitely, to me, looked like two teams who had a summer holiday, a game, a week off, then another game. It's kind of a shame that because they're not involved in European rugby, that it's so disruptive on their season. It'll be interesting to see next year if we do have the likes of, for example, the Southern Kings in the Challenge Cup and the Cheetahs in the Champions Cup, how that's going to affect their ability to put together a run of form. Interesting point. Another game where the Kings didn't get a player yellow carded. Maybe they really have cracked that discipline issue. I just think the ref had no interest in giving yellow cards for repeated penalties. <laughs> there was so... <laughs> well... If, even if it was being refereed a little soft, I think we'll still take playing the referee as an advantage for the Kings. Definitely. Look, in the main, this game was dominated by the Cheetahs. They had the best of the attack. That's obvious by the scoreline. But they just weren't clinical enough. But they just weren't taking all their opportunities and should have put Kings away a lot easier. It's hard to tell from this game exactly what level the guys have come back up to. Obviously, next week, they'll be facing other opposition before they go back to the return fixture of this derby. And then that could be a really good game. Both should have warmed that back up by then. Look, in a game where nobody was really playing well across the team, it's individuals who stand out. Schumann played really well, and Maxwane, for me, was the standout player in this game. Especially going forward. He held his line really well for Schumann's show and goal, just to get his first try. The other standout for me in the Cheetah side, their set piece looked really secure. They were able to get good ball off their line out, and the scrum was a penalty vending machine. Yeah, it really wasn't. It built them a platform where they got their scores from. Kings, on the other hand, just need to be a bit more composed when they got the ball. They had opportunities, but just were flaking around like they didn't care. It's a shame they weren't more effective when they had the ball, because a lot of their tactical kicking meant they were playing in the right part of the pitch. And their scramble defence was really good from minute one, stopping two try-scoring opportunities in the first couple of minutes, and just keeping that up throughout the full 80. If there's anything that you need against the Cheetahs, it's a really good scramble defence. And that's all the rugby for this week. We now move on to the second row top performer and clown of the round. And you have picked our top performer this week. Yeah, and in a week where there weren't necessarily any standout individual performances, I wanted to acknowledge somebody who has just been transformational to their team this season. And that's Richard Cockerell at Edinburgh. You look at the campaign they've put together in Europe, while at the same time putting together a serious run of form that leaves them in the playoff places in the Pro 14. But more than that... Cockerell has managed to turn Edinburgh from a side that was prone at times to a little bit of getting distracted, losing focus. They are so tough right now. They really are. That soft underbelly that Edinburgh used to have where you'd get in front or put them on the back foot, they would tend to fold a bit quickly, is gone. And they take their chances. They have a pack that are not to be messed with. No, they're a, they have one of the best packs in Europe right now. My... Long-term worry for them is the money's going to come a-calling. And will the team Cockrell's managed to put together be decimated? True. Or will another big English club come for him? Or potentially the England job itself after the Rugby World Cup? But you know what? I think let's take a second to acknowledge and credit Edinburgh. If I had told you at the start of this season that Edinburgh would top a pool with Toulon and Montpellier and Newcastle in it, you would have had me committed. 
Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Speaking of people who need to be committed, clown of the round, Porik, who have you gone for then? If you didn't quite notice it when we were recapping the Leinster match, there was a moment in it that really, really annoyed me. And that was when Andrew Porter got caught ball watching at ruck time when he was the pillar, the cardinal of all sins in rugby. I've seen magicians perform less effective misdirection than Dan Robson did. He just threw a non-pass and skirted inside Porter directly to the try line. Like, it literally is pillar defending 101. I know that and I played fullback. It's simple. Your only job as a pillar is to kill the nine if he does that. Like, you're not meant to watch the ball. You're meant to watch him and just kill him and smash him into the ground (laughs) every day of the week and twice on Sundays. Well, if anybody did miss that, get over to the second row Twitter where Porig has put together a video tribute to that particular moment. We'll take a look at next week's fixtures in the Pro 14, round 14. That's going to get really hard to say. Glasgow on Friday night hosts the Ospreys. Leinster hosts the Scarlets. And in probably the most important game, Ulster host Benetton. Three in-conference fixtures, all on TV at the same time. That's genius, people. Genius. (laughs) Well, maybe they wanted it to be that everybody would be watching rugby on Friday night. Because I think there's something in there for everybody. You look at Leinster, they should be able to put out a talented team, even missing their Ireland stars. Again, for me, Ulster Benetton is the pick of them because I think that's going to be really important for qualification out of this conference. Then on Saturday, there's just a stream of rugby to be watched. Cheetahs host Zebra, Dragons host Munster, Southern Kings host Edinburgh, and Connacht travel to Cardiff. This is probably when the Dragons and the Southern Kings would pick to play Munster and Edinburgh, to be fair. International be on their prep camp for Six Nations. It's the time to get them particularly given that there's not a huge amount of internationals in the Dragons setup and there are uh, none in the Southern Kings setup. So those teams will be able to field pretty much full strength teams. Connacht travelling to Cardiff, that could be a tough ask this time of year. Don't forget, that's 4v5 in Conference A between Cardiff and Connacht. It's really important to create breathing room between Connacht and Cardiff. For sure. And we'll be back next week to discuss those Pro 14 matches before the return of the Six Nations. I'll be back, you're going skiing. Or snowboarding or something. I don't know. It's a tough life I have. (laughs) We'll have a special guest next week to keep our company though. That is a complete first world problem. And we're going to ask for a complete first world favor. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on Facebook, Twitter. Podcasts like The Second Row grow from word of mouth. And we really need your help to grow. And whether that's on facebook.com forward slash The Second Row. Or hit us up on Instagram and Twitter where we're at The Second Row. We really appreciate if you can help us to reach more people. If you like what we do, give it a retweet. That's it. And we are literally on every podcasting platform. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, you name it, we're there. So hit that subscribe button if you're listening. So until next time, take care and thanks again for listening. Bye-bye, everyone.